You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Well, I, I want to say thank you to all of the families and uh, people who have made uh, this weekend happen for our students. Um, parents, thank you for encouraging your students to be here. Um, I personally want to thank all of you who either physically came up here or I know wherever you were, were praying. Um, man, it's just been a great weekend. Um, students, I just, I know that God has worked in and through your lives and is going to continue to do so. So it's been great. Chip, thank you for tons and tons and tons of hard work as always. Uh, Stephen Dunn was here this weekend speaking to our students and Stephen is a youth pastor at one of our, um, gospel partner churches in the area, River Tree. And there was at least three or four times that Stephen said to me, man, Chip makes me dizzy. He just, he's going everywhere. I'm like, yes, sir. You know it. Um, someday, and I don't know how long it will take us, but eventually we're going to look back and we're going to realize that the internet, uh, was really genuinely one of the most world changing things ever invented. I mean, it's, it's really mind-blowing that we can communicate with someone on the other side of the world in like seconds, you know. Um, regardless who actually invented it, um, we, we know that it, it's going to be held as one of the most world-changing things ever invented. So much so that it's kind of hard in our context to think going back it was something else ever this world-changing And I think that without question, you can make the argument that way back, kind of before most of us in this room, in the 15th century, this thing called the printing press came along and changed the world. And obviously it changed the world because you could mass produce books. But what also began to happen when the printing press was invented and literature began to be mass produced, literacy began to go up. But as the people of God, we know that something even more significant than that happened in that the Bible began to be mass produced. And what happened along with that was the Bible began to be translated into common languages like English and French and German. And when this happened, now all of a sudden, um, there's access to the scriptures by any person on earth who can read without having to rely on a priest or the church to interpret them for you or read them to you. Now, why is that a big deal? Why would it have been a big deal of relying on a priest or the church? Well, because the priest in that day and time, specifically the papacy of the Roman Catholic Church, controlled the reading and the interpretation of the scriptures. And so because of this, the church had heavy, heavy sway over the people. Well, fast forward just a little ways into the 16th century, and the Roman Catholic Church invented something else called indulgences. Indulgences were a piece of paper that you could purchase. Um, You could purchase it through making a monetary donation or even by doing a charitable good work. And the reason why you would want an indulgence is that that piece of paper supposedly would reduce your time in purgatory. Well, hearing and understanding that leads to the next question. Okay, what's purgatory? 
as a kid and a guy that grew up in Texas and then spent 10 years in Kansas and used to go to Colorado all the time skiing, I spent the first half of my life thinking purgatory was the ski slope area up in Colorado, (laughs) which it is. But purgatory is also a Roman Catholic doctrine uh, that is supposedly a place or state of suffering um, inhabited by the souls of sinners who are expiating or working off, if you will, certain sins before going to heaven. Now, I hope that just hearing that, there's something within you that goes, whoop, time out. Something sounds off there. Yes, it does. This is a place where you're supposed to go and work off certain sins before being allowed into heaven. Let me get real specific with it. Uh, Let's look at the catechism of the Catholic Church. Here's how this phrases it. It defines purgatory as a purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. And it's for those who are said to be going to heaven but are nonetheless still imperfectly purified. Again, I hope something is going off in you, ding, 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 like, wait a minute. What's the deal with this? If you look in the Catholic Encyclopedia, it defines purgatory as a place or condition of temporal punishment for a Christian after death. And I sure hope that that's the last and final one where you go, okay, now I've had enough. A temporary place of punishment for a Christian after death. The punishment and purification process is supposed to purge thus the name, those sins that had not yet at that point been cleansed. So understanding and and hearing everything I've said so far about purgatory, you probably won't be surprised that without any reservation at all, I will tell you purgatory is a false doctrine. It is unbiblical. Now, it's in the Apocrypha, which the Roman Catholic Church mistakenly holds up next to the scriptures. But purgatory is not only unbiblical, okay? It not only undermines, it nullifies the effectual work of Christ on the cross. Now, be clear. I did not say the affectionate work of Christ on the cross. The effectual work. It it undermines and nullifies the effectiveness of, of what Jesus did for us on the cross. So when you understand um, that the whole idea of purgatory says, Jesus didn't quite do enough. You understand this is a false doctrine. And now that we understand purgatory, let's go back for a moment to indulgences. When you understand the falsehood of the idea of purgatory, you then begin to understand how toxic and vile and deceiving, moreover, unbiblical, the idea is of somehow having to pay for our sins, uh, of somehow um, being able to purchase our forgiveness, moreover, our salvation. But this is exactly what the Catholic Church was teaching, and what was really happening was they were making money, they were building palaces, they were living like kings, and they were doing it off of the fear of the people. I don't want to go to hell. Here's my money. Enter Martin Luther. 
Now I realize that tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. And I'm all about that. But this is Martin Luther. Okay? If you don't know the difference, you got at least 15 minutes of homework for today. All right? Martin Luther is a monk in Germany, 15th, 16th century. Luther began, obviously, as a Roman Catholic monk to know what was going on with indulgences. Well, Pope Leo X begins very slowly spreading this idea throughout Europe. And Pope Leo contacts the Archbishop of Brandenburg, which happens to be the province where Luther lives and serves, and says, you need to get indulgences going. So the Archbishop agrees. And he goes out and hires a guy by the name of Johann Tetzel. And Tetzel basically became like the local salesman for indulgences. He's in the town square selling to anybody that wants to buy them or work for them. Luther began opposing him because just right initially off the surface, Luther could see that this was exploiting the people and it was bringing a lot of people into a financial strain. But Luther couldn't quite put his finger on Why does this not sit well with me? Well, in great wisdom, Luther kept searching and searching the scriptures. And the more and more that Luther searched the scriptures, he began to see the biblical and spiritual inconsistencies with what the idea of indulgences was teaching. And so Luther began to speak out. And his words and his convictions began to ripple all through Germany. And then as a result, all through Europe. And eventually, Luther, people started to hear about Luther, and the church and the state started to say, we got to shut this guy up. So from the Pope to the bishops, all the way to the governors, they came together and they said, we got to get this guy to be quiet. And so they called Luther, they summoned him. Uh, if somebody knocked on your door today with a subpoena, you got to show up at court Luther got subpoenaed, and they told him, you got to come to this city called Worms. Now, Worms in English is spelled W-O-R-M-S. This council that was put together to examine Luther, a council of this nature, is called a diet. In English, it's spelled D-I-E-T. So Luther was summoned to the Diet of Worms. Take that for what it's worth. When they brought him in, they basically, it was a lot like Paul and John before the council of Jerusalem. They said, hey, Luther, you're in heresy by teaching that the church is in heresy. You need to shut up and recant everything that you've said. Again, it's just like the council saying to Peter and John, you got to quit talking about this Jesus rising from the dead. It's causing lots of problems. And they even were nice enough to give Luther a whole day to think about it. Well, Luther went away and came back and very much like Peter and John who said, sorry, we're going to keep talking. Luther got before the council and I want to read to you some of what Luther said. Very, very small part. He said, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. 
Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. And man, were they mad. But there's nothing they could do. Why? Mainly because all of the people loved Luther. So they let Luther go with a plot to kidnap him and kill him. Little did they know there were so many people who loved Luther that they knew they were going to try and kidnap him and kill him. And so they kidnapped Luther and saved him. The story's great. Again, if you don't know it, I really encourage you to read it. But Luther here, as all of these external forces are coming in against him, there's this internal struggle going on because all of these things that Luther has been taught and then has even taught himself all his life, he's beginning to sense that maybe there's an error there. Luther is seeing all of the contradictions. This internal struggle becomes intense. Why are we talking about this morning? Well, the reason is because all of this struggle within Luther, it all began when Luther started reading the book of Romans. And very specifically, Luther didn't make it out of the first chapter of Romans before the struggle started. And to be even more specific with you, this struggle really went through the roof and intensified when Luther got to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And that's where we are this morning. Friends, Romans chapter 1 sparked, fueled, and forged Luther's gospel belief. And my prayer is that it does the same for us this morning as well. Look with me in Romans chapter 1. Um, if you're using the Bible app, you version there, you can go to the events and find the brook and follow along with us there. But just to remind you, last week, Romans chapter 1, verses five through uh, 8 through 15, Luther says to them, I thank my God for you. Um, I pray for you always. I long to come to you that I might encourage you and you might encourage me. And then last but definitely not least, and that I might share the gospel with you. Look at verse 16. Luther says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or beginning and ending in faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Go back to verse 16. Luther could have started this section by saying, I am proud of the gospel. I am an advocate of the gospel. I am all for the gospel. I am fired up about the gospel. But he doesn't do that. Luther begins by saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. English theologian John Stott says this, There's no sense in declaring that you're not ashamed of something unless you've been tempted to feel ashamed of it. And without a doubt, Paul knew this temptation. 
Are, are, you, are you hearing that? You get it? The apostle Paul was tempted to feel shame for the gospel, to be ashamed of it. Why? Well, he tells us in 1 Corinthians, if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is where Paul in verse 18 says that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The whole idea of the gospel of the cross of someone dying for our sins and rising from the dead, that is foolishness to anyone who doesn't believe it. He goes on in verse 23 to say that even to Jews or to Greeks, if they reject it, it's a stumbling block for them. So the apostle Paul here is saying, look, if To a lost world, the cross and the gospel are foolishness. Understand that if you come bearing that, that you are going to be potentially viewed as a fool. He says, the cross is foolishness to some, a stumbling block to others. Why is this? Well, it's because the cross undermines self-righteousness. And if anyone is tempted to think, yeah, I got this on my own, I don't, I don't need your cross. The cross completely unravels uh, self-indulgence, self-absorption. To put it very, very plainly and succinctly, what the cross does, the cross crucifies self. And that's not something that any of us in our flesh are real hyped up about. And obviously, not physically, but spiritually, the old man, the the flesh, doesn't want to say, sure, take all of me and do away with it. There's, There's resistance to that. And so because of this, the gospel will always bring opposition from those who don't believe it. We don't have a whole lot of trouble believing that. But hear this. The gospel will also always cause division among those who are ashamed of it. If we split this room down the middle and every single one of us in it claim to be a Christian, but half of the room Man was confident and fired up and hot about the gospel, about what Christ has done. I'm ready to go out and tell anyone who will listen. But maybe the other side of the room is like, yeah, I don't so much know. It's, it's great news for us. But maybe we should just be a bit more low key about it. Just keep it down a little. Unity won't last long. Because you know, like, if you've been to a football game or you've been anywhere and you've got that loud friend, it's like, um, when my mom and I are at basketball games and stuff right now, it's kind of a competition, which one's going to be the loud friend. Um, We're going at it. But what happens is that the gospel, it begins to cause division when we're ashamed of it. One of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozer, who I would encourage you, anything Tozer writes, read it. In his book, The Radical Cross, he says, we must do something about the cross and one of two things only can we do, flee from it or die upon it. 
Those are our choices. The cross will make you look like a fool to some. But see, the Apostle Paul comes along and says, I don't care. I am not ashamed of the gospel. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And here's why. It is the power of God to everyone who believes it. Probably some of you have heard this before, so bear with me. But this word here, power, in the Greek is the word dunamos. It's the word that, yes, we get our word dynamite from. But understanding that we probably, most of us, have a negative connotation with dynamite, blow stuff up. Some of these teenage guys, not so much, like, let's, let's do that this afternoon. It's also worth saying that this is the word we get dynamic from. But either one has bearing here because Paul is actually saying that the gospel is this un, uncontainable, explosive force. But it is a good uh, uncontainable, explosive force because it is the good news. Now, in case you didn't know, before Jesus Christ was ever even born, there was gospel. There was gospel. Gospel means good news. And, and so today, if like an eighth of a mile from us across that big field at that hospital, a baby is born and the dad comes running out, throwing out cigars, pictures, I don't know what, going loony, my child's here, my daughter's been born. What that dad has become is an evangel or evangelist of the good news. My daughter's here. But here's the thing, friends. That guy's daughter being born doesn't really change my life. Paul is saying, I am not ashamed of this good news because it is the dynamic, unharnessable power of God for salvation to every person who believes it. No way I am ashamed of it. Paul keeps going, verse 17. And he says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. In it, in this gospel, in the message of salvation of the cross, in, in this gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Yes, the righteousness of God that is required of you and of me, but is in no way attainable by you or me on our own. And so, yes, also the gospel that thank you, Lord, is available to you and to me only through faith in the atoning work of Christ on the cross. What does this look like? How, how does this happen? Where or how is this righteousness manifested or revealed? Well, Paul tells us, if you look with me in 1 Corinthians again, Turn a few pages over there, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul lays the foundation and then he builds on it. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30, Paul says, Because of him, or from him, from God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom 
from God, who became to us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus Christ became our righteousness. Again, Paul's laid the foundation. Now he builds on it. He writes them another letter. Look in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Because here Paul tells them that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. God took his sinless son, who knew no sin, and placed the sin of the world on him. So that in him, you and I might become the righteousness of God. So now you understand in 1 Corinthians, Paul has said, Jesus has become our righteousness. That is the foundation. But then when you and I come to that place of surrender to Christ, that place of salvation, Paul says, no, no, now Christ, through his atoning work and what he has done, that you and I now become the righteousness of God. How on earth does that happen? Only through Jesus. And friends, that is mind-blowing, life-changing news. But Paul doesn't even stop there. For in it, the righteousness of God has been revealed. And he says, from beginning to end through faith. And then Paul reaches back into the prophet of Habakkuk and quotes Habakkuk. And he says, just like Habakkuk said, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. This has twofold meaning here because... Paul is communicating how sinful people become righteous. It's through faith. But then Paul says, but let me also tell you how those sinful people who have become righteous will now live and walk by faith. You have been saved through faith. You will walk and live by faith. Salvation is through faith. So now hang with me and go back to the beginning of where we started. You cannot earn it. You and I will never do anything to deserve it. Moreover, we could never in a million years have enough to purchase it. We can't spend enough or do enough to possibly merit the love of God. And so the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of this good news because it has saved and transformed my life. Friends, Paul has confidence in the power of the gospel because he has believed it for himself. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We will get to Romans 10 many, many months from now. I think the students may have been in there last night or even this morning. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friends, if you believe the gospel, which requires faith, then you have received Christ's righteousness through faith. And now understand, if you and I have received Christ's righteousness through faith, you and I can now walk and live 
by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. This is why Paul, before he writes that and quotes that, he says, from beginning to end through faith. Yes, I am saved by faith, but that's how I have to keep walking. The righteous shall live by faith. And herein lies one of the greatest problems and stumbling blocks that we have as Christians. I want to ask whoever's going to bring the whiteboard up, if you guys can bring that up for me now. Thank you. Friends, what is born and made alive in us by and through faith, um, it cannot maintain and sustain by something else. They're fine. They've got master's degrees in doing this. Chip might want to help them. You know, I'm just tossing that out there. Um, It's a lofty thing that we asked of them when they walked in the door this morning. We sprung it on them. Yeah, just keep coming. Awesome. Fabulous. Thank you, gentlemen. Oh, yes. Hopefully that is not the most significant part of their weekend. (laughs) Friends, what is born and made alive in us by and through faith, somewhere along the way, we start trying to maintain and sustain by other means. And that does not work. Um, What's born through faith cannot now somehow grow without faith. I want to walk through a little bit of this with you this morning. I know that some of you in the room can't see this. I will tell you um, that this diagram is in the notes there in version. Um, it will be up later. I will say maybe this morning is a lesson in not being a back row Baptist. Just saying. Front row view. You guys can see this, can't you? See? Glory to the front row. So bear with me here. I was dead in my sin, just like you. The only way I was even allowed to respond to the gospel is that I was drawn, okay? I was drawn by the gospel, by the spirit of God. When that happened and I received it, I was brought to life by faith in the gospel. And friends, I will tell you without hesitation that when I was brought to life by faith in the gospel, I was by all means not ashamed of the gospel. It transformed everything about my life. Jesus changed it all. And Paul says that when this takes place in us, that we can now walk and live by faith in the gospel. And so now here's where we really need to understand what happens when you and I walk and live by faith in the gospel. It increases our boldness. 
It increases our hunger for more. It increases our desire um, to share that gospel, our refusal to think that we could have the audacity to keep it to ourselves. And when we're not ashamed of it, we keep more and more walking and living in it. And it starts this process in our life of walking and living and declaring boldly and walking lively and living and declaring boldly. And it, it feeds itself, if you will, through the power of the spirit and the word. But now here's the problem is again, that somewhere along the way, you and me, all of us, we are tempted somehow to start walking and living by faith in the flesh. And when we do, it takes us somewhere other than boldly proclaiming the gospel. In fact, where it takes us usually is back to a place of shame and fear. And this leads to division in the church. And this leads to a muting of the gospel and a stifling on our part of advancing his kingdom. Make no mistake, God's kingdom will not be stifled. But you and I don't want to forsake the opportunity that we have to participate in this. What's born in and through faith um, can't now somehow begin to grow through the flesh. It won't work. It won't work. You can't do it in your power, in your strength, with your resolve. It just won't work. And again, friends, somewhere along this path, if we begin to walk and live by faith in our flesh, what begins to happen is that we grow apathetic to the gospel. And make no mistake, when we begin growing apathetic to the gospel, we begin growing more and more ashamed of the gospel. Because rather than understanding that my life is about the name of Jesus and the glory of God, I start worrying more and more about the name of Brian and the glory of Brian. And going back to that cross, that's where Brian's supposed to die that Christ might be made alive in us. You remember last week, Paul tells us that if the gospel has been delivered to you, it's been entrusted to you. If it's been delivered to us, then it's been entrusted to us. It's not just life-changing news for you. It's life-changing news to everyone who believes it. So Jesus says, go and tell it. So understanding that, it really begs the question, why have so many Christians become untrustworthy with the gospel? Why, why are many of us tempted to walk out of here today and, and, and take this? I mean, the, the, the worship and, and the proclamation and the glory of God that we were able to participate in together in, in just singing earlier. 
I don't know how you can be a part of that and think, yeah, we should keep that to ourselves. That'd probably be a good idea. I don't think so. So why have so many of us become on a day-to-day basis untrustworthy with the gospel? It's because somewhere along the way, we stop realizing or remembering that we are evangelists with good news and we start thinking that we're salesmen with a product to sell. Any door-to-door salesman on the face of this planet that tells you they love their job, they're lying. They're going to wake up tomorrow and go, all right, get to go out and be rejected today. Because all of us sitting here in this room know how much we nowadays hate to hear, ding dong. It's like, hide. You know, (laughs) if they don't hear us, maybe they'll go away. Who is it? Oh, it's your dad. You know, I mean... We don't know who's out there. We just don't want to go to the door. We begin to think, that's me with Jesus. And friends, here's the deal. Jesus doesn't need a marketing department or a PR department or a sales team or a defense attorney. He doesn't need any of those things. So you can relieve yourself of those duties. They have not been laid on you. The gospel is not a product to sell. In fact, it is not an opinion to debate. It is good news to declare. That's why Jesus found these fishermen and said, hey guys, come follow me, watch what I do, listen to what I teach. And when they were ready, barely, Jesus said, okay, Now go and share this good news, declare this gospel, the kingdom is here, make disciples who will make disciples. And they did, and boom, here we are. The church is unstoppable because the kingdom is unstoppable, and it's not the other way around. Back to Tozer in the Radical Cross. Tozer says, we who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relations agents sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big business, the press, the world of sports, or modern education. We are not diplomats, but prophets. And our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. Friends, our message is this. Jesus Christ has come to save sinners just like me, just like you. And it's really not something up for selling or for debate. See, nobody on the face of the earth can argue with me about what God has done in my life. I will tell you this morning that at the age of seven, I... Gave my life to Christ. But somewhere around the age of 14, 15, 16, um, I decided, I think I want to take that back. And some of you may be offended by what I'm about to say, and if so, um, sorry. Basically, I lived two years of my life or so trying to give God the finger in any way that I could thinking maybe he'll just leave me alone. He didn't. 
in my rebellion and my attempt to do that, um, alcohol was involved in it. And about a week before I graduated from high school, one night, under the influence of alcohol, with six of my friends shoved in my car, I still to this day do not know why I'm not dead other than that God saved our lives. And I dropped my friends off, and I went home, and I tiptoed to my bedroom. It's 1230 at night. And hey, I hear my parents, they're still up. I wonder what they're talking about. And I put my ear to the door of my parents' room and what do you think they were doing in there? They were praying for me. And at that moment, I went into my bedroom and wet myself to sleep. And the next day, it was a Saturday. That was the day that I could almost swear to you that Jesus audibly said, Brian, do you want your life or do you want me to have it? Because I spent two years trying to like, maybe just prove to myself, I got this. I didn't have it. And I will tell you, I do not say this egotistically. I do not say this pridefully. I say this because this is just the facts. That's when I surrendered my life to him and I have never looked back. I have walked through valleys that I understand why David coined the the valley of the shadow of death. I've been there. I've gone through grief. I've gone through joy. I've gone through it all. I've fought anxiety and depression. You name it. But I have never walked away from Jesus because I know there's no way I could possibly make it without him. And friends, that's the good news of the gospel. And I don't need to sell it to you. I'm just here this morning to declare it to you. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in Christ you and I might become the righteousness of God. And Paul says, yes, the righteous, they will be saved through faith, but they will walk and live by faith as well. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.